There's a wonderful contemporary theologian by the name of Fleming Rutledge. And as an undergraduate, she spent a great deal of her time studying Shakespeare. This is what she had to say about one of her literature professors who had a huge impact on her. She writes, The professor who taught us Shakespeare when I was an undergraduate gave me a gift for which I have been grateful all my life. He taught his students that Shakespeare is vast, colossal, inexhaustible. Shakespeare, he insisted, is bigger than any of us, bigger than all of us put together. He instilled in us a respect, indeed a reverence, for Shakespeare's plays. And this evoked a corresponding humility in us. We were assigned various critics to read. But in the end, he used to say, the critics are all bad, including himself. The plays were indeed the thing. Only by submitting ourselves to the text for months and years on end would we ever approach wisdom by entering the world of the plays, by giving ourselves up to their shaping power, by allowing Shakespeare to reconfigure our horizons and open our eyes to new realms of understanding. This is totally different from the way Shakespeare is taught now. Students are encouraged to think themselves as competent to interpret the text as they think best before they have allowed the text to have its way with them. Those are beautiful words. When reading Shakespeare, and ever much more so, when reading the text of holy and inspired scripture, we ought to chasten our sort of gut reaction to immediately try to interpret the text. We hear the words, and we want to interpret right away. We need to bridle our impulse to sort of autonomously exegete, to try to interpret, to try to make sense of the text. And first and foremost, we just need to listen. We need to place ourselves in a position of humility before the text and let the words of Scripture have their way with us. We need to let the sword of the Spirit slice us, having faith that having been slain, We will rise again. Now, this type of reading, it's difficult. It takes wisdom. It takes patience and practice. It takes gentleness to read any text, especially scripture this way. It takes meekness. And it takes faith to read the text that way. Our sermon text this morning, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. And our goal will be to sit before this feast that is the word of the Lord, and sit before it with gratitude and humility and see if we can let the text have its way with us. Now, Scripture, it certainly needs no aids, but as a sort of pedagogical prop or a teaching and preaching scaffolding, I'll be using what I believe to be the greatest works of Shakespeare, the greatest work of Shakespeare. Truly, I believe the greatest work in the history of Western literature, to help draw out what this remarkable text of Paul has for us. I'll be using this particular work to help elucidate, to give sort of a meaningful image to hang on to in regards to this incredible truth that we just read, that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we're going to make two points this morning. Two points. 
First point, Lear, every inch a king. And secondly, the children of God, every inch, kings and queens. So first, Lear, every inch a king. Shakespeare's King Lear, it has its claws in me. And it has its claws in me in a way that I can't really describe. I'm not sure I can explain it to myself, even less so explain it to you all. But it has its hooks in me. It has its hooks in my psyche and the life of my mind. It tugs on me emotionally to the point where I am unable to read it without being moved to tears. And I don't cry a lot. I often can't even read commentaries about King Lear without having to stop myself from weeping. As the title would suggest, King Lear, it's about a king. Shakespeare wrote about kings a lot. He wrote about all those different Henrys. He wrote about Richard. He wrote a play called Julius Caesar. He wrote Macbeth about the king of Scotland. And Hamlet about the prince of Denmark. But Lear is titled King Lear. Macbeth is not called King Macbeth. Richard III is not called King Richard III. And Hamlet, it's got a subtitle. Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark. As if Shakespeare was putting some sort of a distance, a little bit of a buffer, a spacer between the man Hamlet and his role as prince. In Lear, there's no spacer. There's no buffer. This is the Shakespearean work on kingship. The true king. Dare we say the good king. A kingly example for us all. Now, if you are familiar with the play, even in a cursory manner, that might sound absolutely absurd to you. Lear? The good king? The true king? A kingly example for us all? After all, Lear proves himself unwise on multiple occasions. He is prone to violent outbursts. He's cruel. He's egotistical. He shows himself to be incredibly vain. After all, the entire drama of the play, it unfolds after the aged king. He decides to divide his empire up among his three daughters. The monstrously wicked Goneril and Regan and the truly lovely, understated, and gracious younger daughter, Cordelia. I love the character of Cordelia so much that if I were to ever have another daughter, I would try to convince Julia to name her Cordelia. <laughs> now, I don't think I'm going to have another daughter, nor do I think I would win that fight with my wife, but I would try. I would try. That's how much I love Cordelia. And she's only in the play for a short bit. So Lear, in his vanity, or maybe due to his darker purpose, a secret plan perhaps, he divides his kingdom amongst his daughters and their allotment of land, their allotment of territory, will be decided and based upon how well they flatter their father. That's how he decides to divide up his kingdom. Who flatters me the most? The more flattery, the more land. Each daughter is paraded before him to sing his praises, to flatter his ego, to ruminate and proclaim his royal grandeur. His two eldest daughters, some of the most vile characters in all of fiction, 
showing that they did not truly love the king, showing that they did not truly love their father, they enter into his presence and they flatter him. Like cheap perfume, their inauthentic words cling to the air, polluting it and choking all the truth right out. In regards to Goneril and Regan, one can't help think of Psalm 73, which has this little line in there. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. So the first two daughters flatter the vain, aging king. But the third daughter, the beautiful Cordelia, she responds with just three words. An absolute tour de force. A lightning bolt of a statement. When it's her turn to flatter her father, in order to determine how much territory she would receive, she says, nothing, my Lord. Nothing, my Lord. Lear is shocked. He parrots back her answer as if to say, wait, I couldn't have possibly heard you right. Nothing? Cordelia, stoic, repeats her one-word earthquake. Nothing. Cordelia's lack of praise, it will throw Lear into a fit of rage. Nothing begets nothing. Speak again. If you give me nothing, I'm giving you nothing in return. If there is nothing you can do for me, no part of my kingdom will you have. The incensed Lear doesn't stop there. He violently screams at Cordelia and disowns her as his daughter. His good and noble assistant, Kent, he tries to calm Lear down. He steps in between Lear and Cordelia and says, see better, see better. And Lear snaps at him, come not between the dragon and his wrath. Having pushed Kent aside, he then calls down curses upon the womb of his youngest child. So we see Lear is vain. He's unwise. He is prone to anger and outbursts. He sweeps aside friends. And then throughout the play, he will descend into madness. Eventually being stripped of all his possessions, all his men, all his regal splendor, we will find him wandering naked on the heath in the driving storm. At the beginning of the play, King Lear looks the part of the king. He's distinguished, exercising absolute power. He's in charge of others. He's ordering them around. He's robed in kingly garb. He appears from the outside looking in to be every inch a king. But those beautiful words, every inch a king, they are not spoken by Lear until late in the play, right towards the end, when the now blind Gloucester, who has had his eyes grotesquely torn, ripped from his skull, Gloucester cannot see, but he hears Lear's voice. Lear, at this point, he's been reduced to nothing. He has been wandering an outcast in his own land. He's descended into madness for a time. He is no longer decked out in sparkling jewels, but he is clothed in flowers from the ground. He no longer wears his crown, but now he wears the hat of his loyal court jester, the fool. He's put on a literal dunce cap. 
Gloucester, having his eyes gouged out, cannot see, but he hears. And in Shakespeare's world, he sees feelingly. He sees feelingly. And he hears Lear's voice, and he asks this question. Is it not the king? Is it not the king? Lear, in this lowly position just described, stripped of all status, responds, I, every inch a king. I, every inch a king. With that being said, let's leave Lear sort of hovering in the background. We're going to return to the king. But let's for a moment permit him to just sort of float in the backdrop as we look at our second point. The children of God, every inch kings and queens. Our text today is the last two verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And prior to these closing verses of the chapter, Paul throughout all of 2 Corinthians 3, he's been talking about Moses. And when Moses is mentioned in the New Testament, our ears should perk up and we should assume, it's a safe bet, that there was just a discussion about the place of the law that's been taking place. You hear Moses' name in the New Testament, we're talking about the law. What place does the law have now under the new covenant? Verse 17 of our text reads, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now this verse, it's not meant to say something like, the Lord is the Holy Spirit. As we just said, Paul has been talking about the law about our moral obligations. Those rules and regulations that sort of seem to hang over us, making life difficult, filling us with anxiety and dread. Maybe even the law fills us with despair. But here he tells us, the Lord is the Spirit. Paul is telling us that Jesus himself is the Spirit of the law. The Spirit is that which animates The Spirit is that which breathes life into man. And Paul is telling us that if Christ doesn't breathe into it, if Christ doesn't breathe into the law, it will not be life-giving. The law is only seen as a gift, as beautiful, as lovely, as a wellspring of life, once it has been enlivened by Christ. Apart from that, the law is a curse. It is a dark cloud that seems to block any rays of happiness that would be this life of eating, drinking, and being merry, for there is no fixed moral order. There is no law. Let's have a good time. David, through the Spirit, he foreshadows this proper understanding of the law. The law as something that is beautiful when breathed into by Christ. And David writes these words in Psalm 19 about the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The law breathed into by Christ, it revives David's soul. 
The law rejoices his heart. The law enlightens his eyes. It helps him to see better. Remember in the midst of Lear's early rage, brought about, precipitated by Cordelia's terse, nothing. Remember then the good Kent pleaded with Lear, see better. In that moment, he couldn't. Unlike David, his eyes were not enlightened. And so that simple nothing sent him spiraling into nothing. So Christ, he's the spirit that animates the law. And as the ascended Lord, he sends his spirit to animate and enliven us. To turn us into creatures who can see better. Creatures who are attentive. Fixated on the melodic harmony of the law. The spirit is transitioning us into creatures who love and are refined by the law. The law as enlivened by Christ, it's a chisel that is working and gnawing off and chiseling off the fat and the gunk of you, refining you into something much better than you are right now. It's transfiguring you into a creature of glory. It is transfiguring you into kings and queens. But that process, that chiseling, It's a process of purgation, of elimination. It's a process of derobing, derobing the vestments of our own strength. It's a process of being stripped of what the world might view as power, that we might be garbed in the righteousness of Christ. Where there is only the law and no grace, where there is no Christ breathing life into the law, we have nothing but the realm of sin. Nothing but privation of the good. And nothing begets nothing. It leads to nothing. To no hope. No future. No life eternal. No fellowship with God. Nothing. Verse 18 of our text reads. Gorgeous verse. And we all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's a beautiful image, is it not? That we are moving from one degree of glory to another. Now we are certainly glorified above and beyond all other creatures in the created order. As God has pressed his very image on us. He breathed life into us. Making us in his triune likeness. But Paul tells us that we are moving from one degree of glory to another. So I'd like to ask us this morning, what does that journey look like? What does this journey from glory to glory look like? Well, we need look no further than the example of the one who breathed life into the law, who beautified the law through his life of perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience. We need to ask ourselves, what did that journey look like? What did Christ's journey look like? The great second century Greek bishop Irenaeus, he said of Christ, of that journey, that he came down to where we are, to lift us up to where he is. His journey from glory to glory It involved a descent 
a precipitous drop, a plunging into the ash heap of the fallen order. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who was garbed in royal splendor, sharing in the perichoritic, mutually indwelling love that is the triune life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That one was made low in his incarnation. He descended, he deplaned, he dropped. He descended from his seat of authority into the clothing of human flesh. He was made low in his suffering and exchanged the eternal crown of glory for a crown of thorns. One might say he exchanged his eternal crown of glory for a dunce cap, something that made him look like a fool to the rest of the world. If Christ's journey, if his journey was a journey into the valley, then what would our pilgrimage look like? We are united to Christ Jesus. We talk about that language a lot, that we're united to Christ. Well, we're reunited to Christ, not just in his death and resurrection, but we are united to Christ through the whole course of his obedient life, through which he purchased our liberation. And this unity with Christ requires that our lives take the same cruciform pattern. Psalm 113 tells us that he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and the princesses of his people. Like Lear, to be made true kings and queens, we must be made low. And that involves throwing off the clothing by which the world might view us as great. In the Divine Comedy, the Italian poet Dante understood that any true ascent, any climbing up the ladder to paradiso, to paradise, to communion with God, any ascent always involves a descent. The Italian poet's journey starts in the pits of hell. And then having with his guide Virgil, climbed out of hell, out of the inferno, into the second section of the poem, and the second section of his pilgrimage, he finally reaches the shores of Mount Purgatorio. When he arrives on the shores, there's an angel that greets him. And he comes up to him and carves seven P's right across his forehead. P, 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 P. The P's there are short for the Latin word pacare, the Latin word for sin. He reaches Mount Purgatorio and he has the sins tattooed right on his flesh. The seven Ps, they represent the seven deadly sins. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. All of those things must be purged from Dante in order for him to enter paradise, to enter the presence of God. Well, we don't believe in purgatory. Scripture does not teach that there is such a place, but we have plenty to learn from Dante especially in light of our passage that says we are being transformed from glory to glory. Those seven deadly sins, our lust and pride, our wrath and greed, our gluttony, our slothfulness, these are oftentimes the vestments of our worldly stature. These vices are often those things which lead to worldly success and honor. These vile things 
can be what winning looks like from the worldly human vantage point. That's what winning looks like many times from those who can't see better. Lear was proud. He was wrathful. He was envious at the beginning of the play. And to the world, he looked every inch a king. But it took for Lear a radical descent for him to learn humility, peace, tranquility, grace, and love. And it was only when he was at his lowest, after his crown was exchanged for a jester's hat, it was only then that he was every inch a king. It was only in that present hour when he was hungry and thirsty, when he was poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. It was only being brought low that when reviled, he could bless. When persecuted, he could endure. When slandered, he could entreat. He had become like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things by worldly standards. And it was only then that he was every inch a king. Lear's vices, his sins, they sent him and his life spiraling out of control and set the wheels in motion for unspeakable tragedies. Having been brought low, he could finally see better as Kent had pleaded with him. But what he now saw, it was too much for any man to bear. The play, the play ends with Lear carrying the dead body of his beloved daughter Cordelia onto the stage as he beats his chest and howls like an animal. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as the earth. In this bleakest darkness, there is the smallest sliver of hope, smallest sliver of light. Lear had learned grace, his ocean of sadness, as he cradles his dead daughter, contains this thimble of hope. Lear dies in this wild flurry, a vertigo-inducing tilt-a-whirl of part despair, part ecstasy. As the lifeless body of his daughter is draped over his legs, these are the king's final words. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? And thou no breath at all. Thou'lt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you. Undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look, look on her. Look on her lips. Look there. Look there. Cordelia is dead. Lear knows it. Everyone knows it. And yet right before he dies... He calls for her shirt button to be undone. He thinks she's breathing. Look, look there. Her lips are moving. They aren't moving. But Lear, having been brought low, he has resurrection hope. Dare one say he even has faith. And that hope, that faith in a higher power, the throwing off the ephemeral and fleeting for the eternal, that makes him every inch a king. Maybe not in the world, the eyes of the world, 
You and I, we are to be made low, which is foolishness to the world. I mean, what kind of a sadist intentionally takes on a cruciform life? What kind of a lunatic? Well, our text teaches us that Christ has elucidated the law. And we can behold the glory of the Lord by looking at the law through the lens of Christ. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed inch by inch into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. Those in Christ, you must undergo a vertical plunge. A leer-like plunge into what can only look like madness to the world. We must forego the trappings of worldly glory and kingship if we are to be transformed into true kings and queens. For no servant is greater than his master. And if the master was made low, so should we. One is never closer, never closer to the gates of heaven than when one has entered into the depths of the valley of the shadow of death. Because that's the path that King Jesus walked. Unlike Lear, he was and always was every inch a king, but freely abdicated his royalty so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And on Easter morning, you can almost hear the guards in horror and ecstasy, a tilt-a-whirl of ecstasy, delight, and horror. You can almost hear them saying, do you see this? Look, look, look there. The tomb. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. He's risen indeed. The risen king. And you and I are united to him. And by pure, unimaginable grace are right now being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And one day, your heavenly father will ask, is that my beloved child? And Christ will answer for you, I, every inch a king. Amen.